from Troy Public Radio and the College of Communication and Fine Arts at Troy University. This is Inquire, conversations about choral music, the arts, and life. I'm Diane Orlovsky, and I'm a teacher, conductor, writer, researcher, interdisciplinary explorer, and lover of all things choral. And I'm Scott Sexton, a teacher, conductor, world traveler, and choral and global music enthusiast. In this podcast, we want to tell you the stories behind the songs. We want to go directly to composers and thinkers and supporters of arts to learn how they explore sound and universal text and shared human experiences. What you are listening to is the first movement of Christopher Tin's Grammy-nominated choral and orchestral piece, The Lost Birds. The ensemble is the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra conducted by Tin himself. The melodic theme you're hearing occurs throughout the work. It's poignant, it's powerful, and it unifies this multi-movement piece, which is a musical elegy about bird species extinction. Let's listen for a bit to Flocks a Mile Wide. How did we arrive at this conversation? This is an interesting story, I think. The episode is going to explore the music of a composer named Christopher Tin. And when we heard his composition, The Lost Birds, I don't know about you, but I was in love and became, you know, fanatical about it. And I shared this with you, didn't I? And when we explored it together and started talking about it, we thought, well, how neat to drop anchor here and to look at it from lots of different angles. Absolutely. I think it blends both of our interests together. You know, Chris Fertin had a strong world music background, Mm -hmm. and then to watch him, you know, evolved into a work like this, I just think it's great. And you know how I love good settings, musical settings of good poetry. Absolutely. We really hope to take this conversation beyond the music Mm -hmm. 
and inviting naturalist Scott Widensall to join our conversation, you know, was another way of looking at the thematic threads woven throughout the poetry used for the composition and how music and activism and conservation of species all came together. Scott, before we hear movement two of this piece, um, let's talk about how movements two, three, and four all kind of connect to each other and form their own little mini arc. Yeah, you know, he follows the seasons. Mm -hmm. So these first few movements, we hear all these beautiful elements of spring. Right. But in the music, we also hear some hints of what's to come. The winter is coming. The Lost Birds was beautifully sung by the British vocal ensemble Voces 8. So before we listen to Voces 8 sing this movement, let me take a moment to read an excerpt from the poetry of Emily Dickinson, which we will hear in the piece. Between the March and April line, that magical frontier beyond which summer hesitates, almost too heavenly near. The saddest noise, the sweetest noise, the maddest noise that grows, The birds, they make it in the spring at night's delicious close. We recently had the opportunity to speak with Grammy Award-winning composer Christopher Tin and another Scott, Scott Widensall, author and naturalist. Christopher Tin's music has been performed and premiered in many of the world's most prestigious venues. And his song Baba Yetu was actually the first ever piece of music written for a video game to win a Grammy Award. He was also the composer and conductor of the Grammy-nominated concept album, The Lost Birds, which is the heart of our discussion today. Scott Widensall's book, Living on the Wind, was a Pulitzer Prize finalist, and his book, A World on the Wing, a 2021 New York Times bestseller. In addition to his many other books, Widensall's articles have appeared in dozens of publications, and he lectures widely on conservation and nature. We've talked a lot about their individual works, but during our conversation, we also explored a common connection both Tin and Widensall have to another work of art, Todd McCrane's sculpture, The Lost Birds. Can you talk briefly about McCrane's work and any of the connections it might have to you both? And we'll start with Christopher. So Todd 
he's a friend now, and I came across his work because I was hired to score a documentary about his work. Uh, the documentary was called The Lost Bird Project, and it chronicled his creation of these sculptures, but also the hardships he found in terms of placing these sculptures around America, um, North America, I should say. And, you know, this was my first introduction to this issue of bird extinction, especially as it pertained to the late 19th century. And I was so struck by the issues that were presented in the film and through Todd's sculptures that I wanted to say more about it, sort of like on my own time after the documentary was finished. And this idea of creating a piece that memorialized these species that were lost um, due to human activity, it, it really became ingrained in my head. And, you know, when the pandemic rolled around, I suddenly realized this was the the perfect pandemic project in a way to sort of like mourn the loss of these these magnificent bird species um, in a time when we were ourselves were facing a bit of a reckoning with our own mortality. And Scott Widensall, what about you? Well, my my connection with with the project is at once less personal and more personal um, with with Todd McCrane's Lost Birds. He's not a friend. I wish I could say he was. But my wife, um, Amy, worked for many years for um, Audubon, Pennsylvania. And one of the first places that one of Todd's Lost Bird sculptures was placed was Mill Grove, which was John James Audubon's first home in America um, in, the, in southeastern Pennsylvania, one of the, uh, the passenger pigeon sculptures. And I, I think for anybody who's a birder or a naturalist, um, you know, we, we've, we've always been deeply aware of those extinctions. And I think most of us wish we could turn back the clock to see, you know, two billion passenger pigeons blanketing the sky, you know, uh, these, these great rivers of birds that Wilson and Audubon and some of the other naturalists wrote about, Carolina parakeets, great auks, you know, these huge flightless alcids related to puffins, you know, swimming off the coast of, of New England. You know, we're aware of the losses, and um, and those the sculptures that that Todd produced have such an evocative, melancholic quality to them. And then his idea of placing them in the places where those birds once existed, or where they last they last existed before their final disappearance, I thought really really brought home that the message of the finality of extinction and what we lose. So it's, it's something that resonated with me from the, from the moment I first heard about it. Moving on through the work, let's listen to a portion of Movement 3 titled Bird Raptures. The poet here is Christina Rossetti, and the text is Make haste to mount, thou wistful moon, make haste to wake the nightingale. Let silence set the world in tune to hearken to that wordless tale which warbles from the nightingale.
Okay, Scott, this movement for me, that maybe it's because there's so many different elements going on. I really am at a bit of a loss to just summarily define it. What do you think? Yeah, I can see that because with this movement, I listen to the music first. Usually I take it all in, but I didn't really listen to the text. I listened to the music and I found it very interesting. In the first couple of movements, he set up so beautifully soothing and pastoral melodies and very um, just straightforward Mm -hmm. harmonic language. But in this piece, we see a shift, especially halfway through, we see some ominous chords. We see some hints at some modal melodies start to come in. So maybe that's just given us a look of what's to come Mm -hmm. um, as we shift through this song cycle, if you will. Um, That's the first time we get those musical hints. Um, so what about text? What you, you're really good as a choral conductor and educator about bringing out the text and teaching a text. I would love to hear your take on I, that. I can really relate to, to the four poets that he uses. Um, we've already talked, we said Emily Dickinson, Christina Rossetti, and then in addition to Edna St. Vincent Millay and Sarah Teasdale. And of course, these poems are from these women are just so evocative, right? So it just pulls you right in. I understand um, there's such a richness and layering to to their poetry. It seems so fitting to me. I can't even imagine any other lyrics besides these. Well, as you'll hear from another part of the conversation, Christopher Tin made very deliberate choices about the text he chose for The Lost Birds. Well, you know, when you choose a topic such as this, there's sort of no limit to the amount of meaning you can put into it. And especially when you're sort of picking poems from a certain era in time, you can imbue all sorts of secondary and tertiary layers of meaning within the work. You know, for example, I mean, the work does start with a world where birds are plentiful and they're, you know, they're, they fill the skies. And and gradually, the poems themselves start to speak less and less about birds, but more and more about people. And you start to realize that, in effect, you know, this is less an, a work about the extinction of birds, but it's one that actually hints that the extinction of birds is a preface for our own extinction. And by the end of the work, you know, birds are barely mentioned. It's just extinction that is talked about over and over again, and longing and regret and the disappearance actually of people in a way. And that's the sort of core message of the work. The, it's, it's based around the metaphor of the canary in the coal mine, right? A distinctly late 19th century metaphor about how miners used to bring canaries down to a coal mine. And, and if the canary died in its cage, it meant there was a buildup of poisonous gases and that the miners would be next to die. And there's no better metaphor in a way for the, the situation that we're facing now with the, the crisis of our planet. And one of the things that you quickly discover when you start to do, um, you know, a, a piece like The Lost Birds is that bird metaphors and bird imagery is so baked into our culture in so many different ways that we, we don't even realize, for example, how many figures of speech we have in our language that are just based around birds or flight or looking towards the sky or something like that. It is just ingrained in us. And, you know, like... 
Scott can perhaps, you know, answer this better than I can. But, you know, from the from our earliest days, we've been looking skyward, you know, from our earliest days, birds held a very special significance uh, in terms of our appreciation and understanding of the world. And, you know, there's no there's no shortage of things that can be spoken on this particular topic. Scott, before we listen to what, in my opinion, is one of the most poignant movements of the piece, let's listen to what Scott Widensell says about engaging people in dialogue about conservation of bird species. Well, the, the beauty about it, Diane, is that the birds are their own best ambassadors. I've found over and over again that even if somebody doesn't really particularly care that much about birds, they don't really know that much about birds or nature, they haven't really, maybe it's never really risen to their consciousness, if you, if you start explaining to them what these creatures do, if, if somebody has a pulse, they're going to be excited and, and awed by that. I mean, the fact that shorebirds called bar-tailed godwits that are about the size of a pigeon fly 11 days non-stop, 8,100 miles across the widest part of the Pacific Ocean, continuous non-stop powered flight from Alaska all the way to New Zealand every year. The tiny little black pole warblers that, you know, you can mail two of them anywhere in the country for a first-class stamp, they weigh less than half an ounce, take off from the northeastern coast of North America and fly 3,300 miles across the western Atlantic over the course of four or five days to the northeastern coast of South America. And, they, and the, the fuel for that flight is about as much fat as I could fit on the back of my thumb. In fact, by one calculation, if they were burning gasoline instead of fat, they'd be getting 720,000 miles to the gallon. So, I mean, the birds do these astonishing things. And all you really have to do is introduce people to them um, to catch their attention. And because bird migration is perhaps the single most global phenomenon that we have, I mean, even more so in some ways than weather, um, you know, stitching together um, the hemisphere, stitching together the continents. Um, if we create a world that works for birds, if we create a world that's safe for birds, we've created a world that's safe for everything else, including us. And so birds are really the best medium for getting across the interconnectedness of, of global ecosystems and the ways in which we can make this a more livable world for all of us.
Scott, if I had to describe this movement, I would say it's a master class in choral composition. And let me explain why. He starts the movement with this repetition, if you will, of the motive of cry, 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 pulling us in, the listener in. He builds it, and literally there is, you can see, if you, were, if you just closed your eyes and followed the melodic contour of the line, the climax of that is just, it builds and builds and builds and builds and builds, and it's like an emotional release as it starts to come down and we hear that cry motive again. And I, I don't know if it's the power of suggestion or what, but I cannot ever listen to this movement without crying. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I think he does a masterful job. This movement took me also through a wide range of emotions from, from the stillness and that open, beautiful harmonic language with how he uses cry in the first little bit. It, and when I say stillness is, you know, this piece is taking us into the winter portion. Mm-hmm. And I, I almost think like, oh, it's, it's that first night of the season where the snow falls. Mm-hmm. And it's building this up in anticipation of something. But here's where it gets me. I feel comfort and gladness with the climax, but only fleetingly. Uh-huh. And then almost immediately, it's unsettling. It's, it's, not, it's like a false comfort. So it almost makes you feel guilty. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the listeners, I think, possibly are left with the feeling that at the end of this movement that they need to do something, right? No, absolutely. They need yeah. to take action. And then we've know, we, we know that we've lost a third of bird species since the 1970s, and that's, you know, totally unacceptable. Wow, yeah. And so I think he carries this impending doom sort of or loss into Movement 7. Let's listen to Movement 7. I think you'll, you'll hear what I mean. Let's pick up the conversation with Christopher and Scott as they discuss how the first steps of action can possibly come from engagement with art forms. In the last decade or so, there have been many, many pieces written that are various requiems to the world and the planet and humans and everything. 
And there's a lot of doom and gloom out there. And so, yes, there is doom and gloom that I've put forth in this work. And yes, it is tearful. But I didn't really want to hammer the point home too much. I would rather people discover what they want to discover in the work. Because in the end, the lesson that you learn through your own discovery is a better lesson than one that somebody preaches to you. So there are certain aspects that are emotionally open-ended, I would say. May I just jump in for a moment to say to say that's a terrific point, Christopher, because I see this all the time. I mean, so much environmental messaging, ecological message, conservation messaging is, you know, has all the subtlety of a sledgehammer and it really doesn't work. You're right. It just turns people off. Often the first step toward action is awe. And I mean, f for me, listen, listening to The Lost Birds was literally an awe-inspiring experience. It was uh, Diane put me on to the album. I had not heard it before. I had seen the documentary, although I had not realized that you had scored it. But it was it's just magnificent music. And that's the portal of awe and appreciation and love that I think is most likely to spark actual action, you know, serious, serious action on somebody's part, as opposed to, you know, just bludgeoning them over the head with bad news and making them feel awful. And that's, in a way, exactly what we want to happen, right? We want somebody to have an entry point that encourages them to move to the second point of engagement with an issue. Because once you get to the second point of an engagement of an issue, you're more likely to engage with that third point and that fourth point and that fifth point. And suddenly you're a conservationist, right? So, I mean, I think, you know, in a way, the, the entry point benefits more from subtlety than it does from beating you over the head with the messaging right away. I think I speak for both of us when I say it was a rare treat to be able to speak with Christopher and Scott about their groundbreaking works, as well as the larger issues they engage with and explore. Before we close, Widensall shared brief passages from two of his books. The first, Living on the Wind, was published 20 years ago, and the second, A World on the Wing, in 2021. We've stacked the deck against migrant birds, made life barely livable for many of them, pushed others right up to the edge of survival. We're poised to sever the last global links that allow many of them to traverse the planet. We're going to lose some, without a doubt. So my optimism isn't rooted in logic. It's a fragile emotion, much bruised by reality. A slender slip of a thing, but still standing. Besides, there's no future in pessimism. It may be nothing more than wishful thinking, but I suspect the migrants are a little more flexible than we give them credit for, a tad more supple in the face of humanity's juggernaut. We've started to recognize the problems and search for solutions, stitching together international coalitions to husband these precious creatures in the land on which they depend. Here, at the last possible moment, we've awakened to what we stand to lose, poised on the brink, but still, perhaps, with time to draw away from the edge. So I want to read just a little bit at the very end of um, A World on the Wing, which is the book that came out two years ago um, about global bird migration. And, I'm, and just to set this up, I'm speaking here about a gray-cheeked thrush that my colleagues and I had been tracking for several years from its breeding grounds in the, in the wilderness of central Alaska to its wintering grounds in um, South America. We've just downloaded the data from one of these tiny little new high-tech tracking devices this bird's been carrying. 
It's hard for me to say what emotion was strongest just then. Excitement to see this long-hidden glimpse of a hemispheric journey revealed in such extraordinary detail. Gratitude to an individual bird that again and again for five years had provided a window into what its species has been doing for eons. Simple awe, knowing that so small and seemingly fragile an animal could link by so many miles and across so many years a vast tundra wilderness at the planet's far north with the humid rainforest in an equally remote corner of the tropics and all the seas and lands in between. Or maybe it was reverence? Yes, that was it. Reverence for a creature that despite every obstacle we as a species have placed in its path continues to hold faith with the wind and the far horizon, with its genes and with the seasons. Reverence for an endurance and tenacity I cannot match nor fully comprehend, but which leaves me breathless when I'm confronted with it. Reverence for this extraordinary bird and the billions more like it, which by obeying their ancient rhythms, knit up the scattered and beleaguered wild places of the world into a seamless whole through the simple act of flight. May it always be so. We close this episode of Inquire with one of the last movements of the Lost Birds entitled, In the End. And we say, along with poet Sarah Teasdale, All that could never be said, all that could never be done, wait for us at last, somewhere back of the sun. You've been listening to Inquire, conversations about choral music, the arts, and life. Inquire is produced in the studios of Troy Public Radio by Austin Toy, Kyle Gassett, and Diane Orlovsky. Our logo was designed by Rachel Arnold. Special thanks to the College of Communication and Fine Arts and Dean Michael Thrasher. Please subscribe to the Inquire podcast and let others know about us. You can also leave a review in the podcast platform of your choice. It will help others find the show. We hope you join us again for more conversations about choral music, the arts, and life.
This is Inquire. I'm Diane Orlovsky. And I'm Scott Sexton. Thank you for listening. <laughs>